Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faiz Aliafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. At the start of November, a Pentagon report concluded that a drone strike in Afghanistan that killed seven civilians, including seven children, did not violate the law. It was the parting shot in a war that has lasted 20 years, a war which, on the 7th of October 2001, the night the war began, saw the first ever drone strike in history. In the two decades since that strike, the American Combat UAV program, unmanned aerial vehicle, has expanded exponentially. Drones now patrol the skies over Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Yemen, Libya, and still Afghanistan, despite the war having officially ended. Tens of thousands of strikes have been carried out, thousands of civilians have been killed, and countless children have learned to fear clear blue skies. And yet the trend continues. The Biden administration's shift from costly and unpopular boots-on-the-ground interventions to what is now called an over-the-horizon strategy for counterterrorism promises an increased reliance on this kind of remote-operated warfare in the future. But unlike in 2001, the future of remote warfare won't just belong to America. Today, over a dozen nations have already carried out drone strikes, including France, Turkey, Israel, Nigeria, and many more, from Turkmenistan to Switzerland, already have the capability. Analysts attribute Azerbaijan's surprise victory over Armenia in the Nagorno-Karabakh war last year to their use of Turkish-made drones. Drones, more than fighter jets, are now changing the balance of power. The rise of drones has changed warfare, but more than that, it has changed millions of people's lives, most profoundly of all in the greater Middle East, where the majority of strikes have so far been concentrated. Today, we will talk about how those changes happened, but also what might happen next with future technological advances promising to alter the battlefield even further. We will explore what these emerging technologies might look like, how we might regulate them, and what they might mean for the wars coming over the horizon. With me is Kelsey Atherton, a military tech journalist who writes the fortnight newsletter Wars of Future Past, and who has written extensively about drones and the features of modern warfare. Kelsey, welcome to the podcast. A pleasure to be here. Drones are the archetypal weapon of the war on terror. And, and for those of us who are less immersed in the world of weapons technology, they sort of just seem to appear in the years following 9-11. But their origin, I mean, the, the improvements in technologies and the, the shifts in American strategic objectives that led to it, that part isn't well known at all. So I thought perhaps you could start off by giving us that background, what led to their adoption in the first place. Sure. So the place to start with drones um, is I think it's best to look at what was in the works in the 90s. There's a history of um, drones that you can trace back much further. I think the closest thing that I like to refer to as a drone was tested in 1918, but that's a very different thing. Um, there's radio controlled like targets and that's where we get the term drone. That's like, we see those in the 30s and 40s. Um, and this is a long history of making machines that fly without people on board them that are um, in some way directed. Um, but the ones that really come to mind, um, there was a whole era um, of like drones in the Vietnam War, but those would like, they would have to like capture film on like film strips. And then you'd have to like have the drone eject the film. And that was a long, slow process. It's not really um, what we think of. And what really mm -hmm. does it is the ability to have, um, I say cheap, but the, the costs have gone down greatly, but it's really the ability to have a camera that can transmit live video 
um, to a human who can then, uh, from a ground station, use a remote control to direct to the camera and to pilot the drone and move it into position. Um, this is something that uh, was wanted for a host of reasons. We can trace some of the early development to as a way to get around anti-air defenses or to find anti-air defenses. You can look at drones as a way to scout out where um, anti-air missile emplacements are because it's easier to find them with the drone, transmit the thing. You write, you have someone plotting it out on a map and then you can send in planes once you know what's going to be shooting at them. That's a way to protect pilots from anti-air weapons. And what it moves so on to... Was, that was the beginning of, of its use in modern warfare, I think, in the Kosovo War. Yeah, so we see it in Kosovo. There's um some harder to confirm earlier reports, but definitely we see the U.S. using it, especially first um, in in Kosovo, where the um and that's where the Predator, the earliest the Predator, I believe, got its start. And there are other um, drones, just the Pioneer. And there's there's a host. There's a there's a first like sort of a first modern generation of drones is in the '90s, and they don't really get a huge bit of coverage. Um, but what they did is they were there to scout out. They were there to look for anti-air emplacements. Um, they couldn't do anything. You couldn't do anything more than scout with a drone. Uh, the military uses the term ISR. It's intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, but it's basically scouting um, with with more acronyms and the bigger budget. Yeah. And that's sort of where it happens. And then um, so they have these. The military has these on hand, um, and they're also they're sort of on the line where like some of them are. Uh, you have directed with the CIA has a big interest in doing intelligence with the same thing. And that's kind of falls quasi outside the, the narrow scope of, of sort of military intelligence. And that's where the predator comes from. We see the predator in this program. Um, and there's a, a widely documented um, incident of a predator having eyes on what they believe on uh, a person they believe to have been bin Laden, um, but they didn't have a means to pull the trigger. There was no weapon on the Predator. There was no way to do it. And they're like, well, clearly, if we can get a plane without a pilot on it over where we want to be, we would like to have a weapon on it. And so they start arming drones. And arming drones is really a big part of the entire story of 21st century warfare. So you're talking about, I mean, the Bin Laden incident happened before 9-11. It happened in the late 1990s under Bill Clinton. Yes. And so... There is a earlier sort of parallel history to drone development that we see with cruise missiles, which is another way to um, launch a weapon that can go to a precise location from afar. But cruise missiles take time to get there. You want to have eyes um, on target is the term, but you want to, the military wants to be watching and to make sure to confirm what they are doing. Um, and so there was a possibility, right, that in the late 90s, Clinton, with who had reported, they had this drone flying because they reportedly saw bin Laden and could have done it, but they were worried that the time it would take for a cruise missile to get there is too long. Um, especially when you're launching a cruise missile at Afghanistan, you would have to cover, um, Afghanistan is landlocked. You would have to cover someone else's airspace or you'd have to do it from a plane. It's a, it's a difficult political problem and a technical problem. And the solution the military reached was what if we just put a bomb or a missile really, uh, um, on a Predator drone. Mm. And the one they picked is the Hellfire, which is an already available anti-tank round. It was small, it was light. The Predator could carry two when they figured out how to arm it, and then uh, Reapers can carry many more. 
in a way, you could see it as a the change in the way warfare was conducted, because previously they had cruise missiles and they needed to use them against targets that they had already previously scouted. So this is the Cold War era. But then what you see as you get into the 1990s that you have much smaller wars. In Kosovo, for example, they didn't know where the targets were. They needed to scout them out. They couldn't just send the, the ballistic missiles or send the fighter jets. They needed eyes on the ground, and that's where you get the surveillance. The same thing, I think, in Afghanistan. I mean, you were they were looking at for bin Laden. They were not looking for a building. They were not looking for a um, for a, um, a target that they could that they could um, have seen ahead of time. They were right. looking for someone who was moving. Right, and that's the thing that drones bring that is most different from previous weapons it's not that different from having a fighter pilot there but the uh there's a lot of cost and there's risk in it but also the fighter pilot is focused on flying the plane they're not sitting even in like a sensor pod they're not using a joystick to move a camera on the underside of a drone looking for a person and so previously an era where you could find a fixed target and you could put explosions on a fixed target that would usually a building almost always a building sometimes you'd find like vehicles in the place and um and now you have this idea that, oh, well, we see it on camera. It matches up with what we think this should look like through a camera. And because we have the weapon already on the thing that is doing the scouting, we can then make a decision to launch the attack. And it's humans are doing all this, but they have the tools. They have all in one they need, provided that the drone isn't getting shot out of the sky, which it isn't in covert operations and it isn't in... Um, what we'll broadly call counterinsurgency warfare, but even just broadly like flying over a country that isn't mobilized at Air Force against it. Right. Um, Afghanistan, for example. Afghanistan, for example. It's especially, um, it's especially like the drones are meaningful in two very distinct stages of warfare. I know you mentioned the uh, the Azerbaijan example. I want to just touch yeah. on that very, yeah, very yeah. briefly here is what they used those drones for. And they used a, a kind also called a loitering munition, which is basically the drone, instead of launching a weapon from itself, it becomes the weapon. It is a drone that then um, can act like a cruise missile. Um, yeah, I mean, that's we'll, we'll come to that. That's okay. what they used to okay. assassinate the Iraqi prime minister or try to. Yeah, so there's, yeah, so that's, that's a... Big changes, but that what that does is that's you use it in the early stages. You can use that to take out anti-air stuff. Once you have anti-air weapons down, you can fly. You can fly all sorts of aircraft over a country with a lot more impunity, um, and that's important for drones because they're pretty vulnerable targets if you have anything at all that can shoot something in the sky, and it lets there be this kind of warfare where the people operating the the drone have time to follow and track targets and then if they if it matches criteria there's there's whole lists of criteria and all these internal rules and things but basically if it looks like the guy they think it's supposed to be you can they could get the order and they could make the decision to launch a weapon at that person that means i guess that you would it's easier to use drones in countries where the governments are friendly towards you. So Pakistan and Yemen are good examples. The, the, the governments of Yemen and the governments of Pakistan are not trying to shoot down American drones. Right. And there's we know this um, in part because we have explicit record of permission, but also there were times, like especially after the, the Abbottabad raid, right, when they did finally, when the U.S. military did find bin Laden and the compound and they used um, stealth helicopters and special forces on foot, um, to kill him, um, 
Pakistan then closed its airspace to the U.S. That was a huge thing. It changed a lot of logistical flows. But it also meant that there was the, the previous granted permission to fly drones over um, over parts of Pakistan was now denied. Um, and it was denied not just by like diplomatic word, but like there was a credible threat that U.S. drones could have been shot down. So the U.S. stopped for a while. There was a drone pause and then it was resumed and negotiations happened. The, the countries uh, found a way to uh, smooth themselves over. But you really need an, an uncontested sky or tacit, tacit or explicit permission from the nominal government to use drones in a country right now. That may not be true for future drones. There's, there's things that you can talk about, but especially for drones like the Predator and like the Reaper, um, you really need that kind of permission. So you're talking about that in the context of saying that actually you still need fighter jets, because if you're going into a country where there are there's a hostile um, air defenses or there is a there are fighter jets of their own, you can't do that with drones. You have to have fighter jets first and foremost. You have to have some way of, yeah, you have to have some way of clearing the sky, which is uh, uh, quite a euphemism. You have to have some way of making sure there's nothing that will shoot your aircraft down if you want to use drones for it. Drones are really good at seeing things on the ground. They're really good at staying airborne for a long time. Um, they have, they're very, it's hard for them to be aware of threats coming to them. Uh Predators, and I believe Reapers too, have a, they have a forward-facing camera that's used for like takeoff and landing, and they have a camera pod underneath. And they don't really have a ton of other sensors to see like, oh, here's an incoming missile, or here's another plane coming out. So you, you risk losing the drone if you do that. There, there are situations where you could, right? Um, famously, the, the, the Global Hawk that was shot down over the, um, the Strait of Hormuz was... Um, it was unarmed. It was on like the line of where it could be, and you can shoot it down, and then you can say, "Well, there was no humans on board, so it's less of a disaster. It's less of a crisis than if someone had been killed when the drone is shot down." There's a weird sort of gray area in that, but by and large, drones are operated over places where there's not a risk of them being shot, or if it is, you know that you're risking a drone doing it rather than risking um, a human pilot. So there's actually quite a substantial difference in the the utility of these drones, because in a way, the drone technology, as you say, it's, it's not really cheap, but in terms of military tech, it's quite cheap. It's really made warfare much cheaper because you can do things that you simply wouldn't do with fighter jets, which are expensive, or with humans who are very expensive, these sorts of things. Yeah, so one way to compare it, right, is that it makes certain kinds of things easier. Once you have them, right, it's the, the perpetual problem of you're building, you're building hammers and suddenly find all these nails lying around. But mm -hmm. what you do with a drone is it gives you the, using drones gives the option to find targets at a very low cost. Once you already have the drone in place and you can do it, you can search, you can watch. Um, you can track a car as it drives around the city. You can track um, vehicles in fields. And then the the sort of incidental cost is say you're you're already the military is already budgeting for all the the orbits and the drone flights it has. And then the incidental cost becomes: Do we use the missile on this? And that's a much much lower cost than okay. We hear someone is moving in this province. Are we going to mobilize jets to? find them are we going to pull something else in to look for the convoy we think is happening there's a whole lot else to do the the sort of 
it's none of it is cheap, right? The Pentagon uh, laughs at millions of dollars as as rounding errors on most budgets. Yeah, but it is cheap on the scale relative to how you would have to do it if you didn't already have the drones doing. That's the same what thing. I mean exactly, and that's what I mean, Kelsey, because the the drone technology allows you to go into places and prosecute wars below the threshold that you might otherwise have. It allows you to go into places and use explosive weapons against people in a place that you probably wouldn't risk a fight jet or a ballistic missile. And concurrent with that, um, the threshold for evidence that the strike works gets a lot lower. There are, we know this because um, the Obama administration made some clarification on towards the end of it. I shouldn't say um, they, in 2013, they were very straightforward. Here are the rules for when we feel it's okay to do um, the targeted killing memo. Um, and that it included more things. They're like, oh, these are the rules, and they work for drones, they work for cruise missiles, they work for uh, C-130 gunships, and they work for special forces. They outlined, here's a list of ways we can do this. And then in 2015 and early 2016, they outlined, here are the ways that we are constraining our drone use. Here's the transparency we're adopting. Here are the, the after-action reports we have to do, um, which is a minor step towards making the thing more accountable. It was all immediately rolled back by Trump. Um, and we're sort of still figuring out where to get on, on transparency um, in the Biden administration. But you can have this sort of lower threshold of what it is to justify a target. And unless you have um, sort of evidence on the ground, well-documented, and not just well-documented, but well-documented in a way that can reach um, an audience in the US, especially um, like you can get it brought before Congress or something. It's very hard to see when a strike is wrong, when the threshold for, oh, we thought these 30 people gathering were planning to build bombs and go and do violence. And instead, um, oh, it turns out that that was in fact a wedding. And what we have done is we have used a bomb fired from a plane remotely piloted from the US to kill 30 wedding attendees. Right. And I mean, this is this really happened. This was the story that we were talking about in Afghanistan, where the the, the drone um, pilot mistook a water canister, I believe, who was carried by this, this guy who was an aid worker, Zamari Ahmadi. They, they mistook the canisters of water for explosives. And then they ended up conducting a drone strike which killed Ahmadi and killed 10 civilians, including seven children. A devastating attack. And it's one that we only know of as it only really broke into the public consciousness, I think, in the way it did, because it had two unusual characteristics. One is that it, it happened in, in Kabul in a time of high media attention to it. And two, it's extensively reported. It was extensively mm -hmm. documented and reported. Um, it was well observed by people around it and by media. They were able to get people in um, international media as well as local media were able to cover all that happened. And mostly when these things happen, they happen in rural areas where they just, by and large, there was less um, internet connectivity, there was less media access, there was less attention. So it's hard to get a competing narrative then. And sometimes the US would investigate. Um, there's a there's a big uh, investigative process and there was certainly rolled out um, a process to apply for condolence payments. Um, it's sort of the kind of long tail end of a bureaucracy bureaucratization of war is that there's there are forms that the U.S. produced and would hold hearings for, oh, you can appeal if you 
if you can contend that your family member was killed in a U.S. strike, and not just drone strike, but largely drone strikes, you can appeal to the U.S. and there's a there's payment available to compensate for your loss on a U.S. error in the decision. And it's a wild thing to think about, but it was something that was so known enough. Um, and it goes back to, I think, uh, there's a lot of errors in World War is built on errors. Go ahead. You know, I, I want to keep going with this because, you, as you say, it is wild to think about it. It's the, the end of a bureaucratic chain. That's absolutely right. You're asking people whose, whose children, whose brothers, whose fiancés have been killed by these, uh, these drones to then fill in a form and say, actually, I would like a condolence payment because you blew his body to bits. Kind of astonishing when you think about it. That's where we've reached. It... And it's, yes, it's astonishing. And it's sort of a, I mean, on the, it's, it's one of those very weird things where in the abstract, it's better to offer condolence payments than not. But really, that's not, you're solving the problem on the wrong end. Right. Because what drones allow, this is sort of one of these, these sort of less well publicized changes, because there's a lot that the military will tout, right? Oh, well, we can do these missions with less risk to our pilots or less risk to, uh, people on the ground, specifically in these cases, almost always meaning like U.S. Uh, uniformed military um, and sometimes U.S. allies. But what it really also means is we can do these things with a different threshold for violence or a different understanding. Now, um, that's the bit we, that I want to get into. Yeah, that's so we know we know that there are. Um, there are laws of war. The U.S. trains people in them, in, in, in them, and how to abide them. In um, in November 2016, the Pentagon's manual for lawful targeting um, was released. It's unclear how it was. It was sort of a manual that they like that produces to to share how we do this in line with the law of war to share with Five Eyes, which is the alliance of um, the intelligence sharing alliance of the U.S., New Zealand, Canada, Australia, and the U.K. Um, and so this manual comes online, and it's not quite clear why it comes online, why it is published shortly after Trump's election, but it is. And so we can see here are the procedures we follow. But even with all of that, there's sort of a threshold of what what counts as reasonable enough. And this is what uh, came up in the testimony when they had the congressional hearing about um, about the drone strike that that killed those those seven children, those three those those ten people, mm-hmm. is. It was done in accordance with a set of rules that was trying to make it lawful. And it's the kind of thing where they found no one negligent, which you can read a couple of ways. And the way I choose to to read it, I think is a reasonable one, is if your process does not find negligence in an airstrike that is documented within minutes to have killed seven children, then your process is broken from the start. There's no responsible way of following that path of orders can lead you to that conclusion and still be maintained without like some uh, reckoning or some, some reasonable doubt about how well this works. So is that then your criticism of drones, that, that the procedures are wrong? Or do you think that it's a, a moral question about the use of these tools to, to, to kill people who and then you end up killing a lot of civilians as well? So procedures are an outgrowth of sort of the moral logic that goes into them. Once you build a tech that makes it easy to um, look at a group of people and check it against a list that says 
these 30 people hanging out are probably enemy combatants and you have to like follow reporting. Oh, it was actually a wedding party. Um, it's been a problem in multiple ways. Um, the tech sort of lets the bad decisions happen. The policy encourages the tech um, and they build on each other, right? The Reaper is able to do much more harm because it built on the limitations of the Predator. Um, and in some ways you're like, oh, well, we'll have a better camera so we can see more and then you can make safer judgments. But that only matters if that's happening. And what we get instead, um, the thing I point to most sort of as a, as a tech failed attempt to answer the moral question of should we be flying aircraft over and doing strikes like this is there is the um it's the sword missile it's the ginsu it has it's just it's a modified missile launched from uh predators and other things um that replaces the payload with it takes out the explosive payload and what it does instead is it spirals as it flies and it releases for blades um it's messy i'm not going to get into the visceral thing but it's it's visceral is how you describe the impact of it it was designed so that you could hit one person in a car you could hit like the passenger seat and potentially you're not causing harm to the person in like the back seat of the car now mm -hmm. mainly if you're hitting a car you're hitting a car but the other thing it does because it's not an explosive is it doesn't blow up the car so you're creating a mess but and a, a, a violent method ends in death, but you're leaving out, um, you're not causing the car to explode. And that's a way to limit collateral damage. It's strictly better than using another missile, but it's also answering the wrong question. It's, can we do this in a humane way and not should we do this? And I think that's a question that is much harder to ask. And I don't think we've really had a tremendous amount of policymakers Asking it, and it's sort of the thing we see because drones are used beyond Afghanistan. I mean, Afghanistan has obviously uh, been sort of the, the focus point for a while, but it's they're used beyond that without a substantial really um, investigation or questioning by Congress and without contrary narratives brought up by people on the ground to say, hey, this messed up. Hey, um, this ended in innocent lives. Then it's really hard to sink in, oh, what the weapon enables is a policy that uh, – invariably ends in tragedy. Well, let me ask you that question then. Do you think it can be done in a moral way? I struggle to think of a moral way to make targeted killing happening. There is, within the constraints of war, there is some edge case, I think, for if you are having an open battle and you see a and the, there's a military flying a drone over its side of open battle, and it is like targeting tanks moving in, then that falls much more cleanly within the laws of war. I don't know how, but that's a very different scenario, right? Open battles are rarely a thing. Um, they're much harder in counterinsurgency or in insurgency warfare. Um, and so if, it's hard to see the use of drones at counterinsurgency warfare for strikes as an inherently moral weapon. Do, do you feel then that they should be removed from the battlefield in some way? So I think the easier place to go is that we have the building in more obstacles to arming them or changing the threshold for arming them or are their armed use um, are the likely places to start. Removed from the battlefield is tricky because what likely replaces is... Um, the, the, the optimistic version, right, is you remove this weapon from there and then the airstrikes don't happen. And what is 
likely to happen, depending on what military is doing it, is the threshold goes, they kick it up in that shoulder. It's like, oh, well, if we aren't legally permitted to use drones, do we do fighter jets to do the same thing? Mm. Um, and that's messy. And I don't, I don't know that outright prohibition on them would work, but I think certainly looking at the decision flow, looking at the places in the process, I mean, I also, I would... I would flip this and say the question is not remove the drones from the battlefield. It's sort of remove the battlefield. Um, if you aren't operating in such a way where flying a robot overhead to scan for groups of 30 people and see if they are insurgents is part of your operating practice, then you're not going to be doing um, strikes on weddings. I think the problems with drones stem from them largely as a tool of counterinsurgency warfare, um, which is uh, entails in even its most advanced forms uh, crimes against civilians. That's just how those wars operate when you are fighting among when you're fighting insurgencies among civilian populations. I mean, even just having the drones in the sky is a form of collective punishment because people get get frightened and they not they're not able to live their normal life with this thing hovering there. Right, and it builds surveillance. And the one of the things that I think is sort of lost in it, but it became it became clear um, in the aftermath of the Kabul strike, but it should become more clear, is that a drone gives... The military will say that a drone provides intelligence, and that does, but the intelligence is different than information or knowledge, right? What they were able to do is they were able to track a car through a city in several locations. And... Um, you can label that and say, oh, it's a courier for a bomb maker and we're worried about another car bomb being built like this. But it was also very clear what he was doing, which is like collecting people and moving around. And like, it was very, very normal civilian stuff. But you go at it, you build a case with the suspicion first. That's what happens when you're sort of building it as a military intelligence tool. And then you have this false sense that you know what is happening because you have all this data, you have all this video footage. And what instead you get is you get error and you get tragedy and that's sort of by default and like the best case scenario is potentially you blow up a car that did have someone bad in it and then the bomb in that car itself would blow up and cause more harm there's not mm. a great answer to all of this and then you can look at the way um civilian populations by and large do not choose to have drone surveillance over themselves it's not like a thing that people are voting for to say oh well to stop the threat of like carjackings in Albuquerque. What we really need is constant Reaper patrols overhead. That's not um, right, right, a choice right. societies are making. And I think uh, we should extend that basic assumption to, to where people are living under the threat of drones. That, that's an interesting analogy. Um, I want to think a little bit about outside the US, because as you say, I mean, we've talked mainly about what's happened in the United States. But if you think about beyond the US, we've talked about the attempted assassination of the Iraqi prime minister on Sunday, um, and then of course now the Nagorno-Karabakh war. In that situation, in both those situations actually, it's likely that because the cost of using drones was so low, you actually have these bitter conflicts either between neighboring states with Nagorno-Karabakh or between political rivals in Iraq. You actually have them using these explosives in a way that perhaps you wouldn't have done if the drones weren't easily accessible. Yes. And so one of the things that changes, and there's so we're talking about a scale of, there, there's a range of scale of drones, so it's very various drone markets, but it turns out that um, 
you can make a cheap drone carry an explosive very easily. That's something that insurgent forces have done for a while um, back when ISIS uh, was uh, holding swaths of Iraq. Um, they had their own little drone factories where they were arming them and they would use like the, um, they take the feather off a, uh, off like a badminton uh, thing and they'd use that to like as the stabilizer to guide a grenade down. Um, so you can, the threshold for building an explosive drone is low. And then once groups have them, um, there's a, there's a bit of an attribution game. We've certainly seen this with uh, the use of um, explosive drones in, in, Yemen by uh, non-state actors, and we've seen it in Iraq, and we've seen it elsewhere. Um, sometimes you can have a group that can claim an attack, and it's hard to know if you can directly attribute it to a, to a state or to a nation. Um, right. And sometimes you have states that just sort of do it anyway with impunity um, or with with some plausible liability. And you can you can have right if the if the assassin you are using is not a person but is. Um, a machine. It maybe has to be set up by a person. Maybe you have to have a pilot who can then slip away. Um, some of these things can be controlled very close. Some of them can be controlled very far. I should note, right? Like if you're using a quadcopter drone, you probably have a pilot who is physically nearby. And if you're using a predator, they're uh, thousands of miles away by satellite uh, link up. Um, but you can still get some lower threshold of violence with an armed drone. How concerned are you about the use of autonomous drones? Like, how concerned are you about the future of war where it isn't a human that orders an attack, it's an algorithm? So there's two related concerns I have with um, sort of algorithm-driven warfare. And the first is that you lose sort of a chain of, of causality. Um, if right now, if a predator drone makes a strike, you can, you could, in theory, trace it back to here's the flight log. Here's the pilot who did that. Here's the evidence on hand. You can pin it back. The laws of war um, spell out, right? Like where you trace order and command responsibility. And like, if a commander orders you to strike a wedding, knowing it's a wedding, that's, that's a war crime on that commander. If they, if it's wrong, you at least know if they, if they don't know it's a wedding or they don't assume it's a wedding when it's happening, you can still at least trace back to a person. And then you have a reasonable claim. Um, which in theory you could have adjudicated um, in the International Criminal Court, though that's a whole other thing. But with a autonomous system, you lose that change of causality. You lose the idea that every action in war can be directly attributed to a person or to several people in there because machines mess up. Machines make decisions um, through opaque processes that cannot be correctly understood. And if an autonomous drone is flying overhead and it makes that same bad decision, is it a problem of coding? Is it a problem of the commander who ordered it there? Is it a problem of the human who is nominally watching the monitor to say, wait, 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 you shouldn't do that. Mm. Um, and that's messy. Um, but that's sort of a process question. That's sort of a how do you – that's why a military might not want it, honestly, because they might not want to have that control taken out of the hands of people who they can – understand and know the reactive um well, this is a dichotomy we were talking about earlier actually between the process because when we're talking about people being given compensation because it's exactly the same thing the problem is not with the compensation the problem is not with the drones making the decisions the problem is why are you outsourcing this to a machine right and so the other big big error right is the machines will 
mess up in distinct ways. So I think there's a problem that you can't trace the attribution back to a person. But the other problem, right, is the error in and of itself. Machines fail in novel ways. We can see a lot of examples of this sort of in, um, if you've seen videos of how like self-driving cars, which have to interact in um, a complex environment with life or death stakes. Um, and that's, that's, that's not one where they are responsible for shooting or avoiding gunfire. But what they are doing, right, is they're moving at speed and they have to interpret the world around them and they mess up all sorts of ways. And they mess up in some ways we can understand, in some ways we don't. Um, and you can sort of figure that out after the fact, but you, you're attaching a machine that has to interpret its environment, understand below, then the possibility for error is so high um, it makes it seem a it's a it's a weapon with I think less military utility than commanders um, and certainly the acquisitions people think and it's also a machine that will could fail in spectacular and new ways. The UN had a report. Um, there's a specific UN office. I'll get the name of it in just a second. Had a report on how error in autonomy is likely to take shape in war, and it's frightening what could go wrong. Um, and that's if the machine works as programmed and verified in a lab, it could still encounter something unusual in a combat situation. Do you and have an example so, of, of this? Uh, so we don't have so I don't have a concrete example of this happening yet, but like a hypothetical, right? Is that if you train a targeting algorithm to look for tanks in the desert, you're training it in sunny conditions, you're training it um to look for this kind of specific frame of vehicle. And if a vehicle with a similar outline happens, or if the weather is different, right, it might mess up and see it in fog differently than it saw in the desert, then yeah. you can have a vehicle incorrectly identified. The one I do have an example of is I watched a demonstration of a FLIR sensor. FLIR is a company that makes um, high-end uh, cameras for military to do infrared and optical. And in this one, they were talking about, the, the person doing the sales pitch was talking about how it could distinguish between enemies and civilians in combat. And that's a great sales pitch, but at the same time this person was talking about it, on display was a algorithm that identified a tree and a pedestrian as the same thing. Hmm. We're still very early on, even though these weapons are being used to kill actual human beings. When you see the demonstration, it turns out that actually we're a long way from it being foolproof. We are, and it might be the kind of thing, just we're a long way from it being, I think, even usefully foolproof. I think we're much further away from it being meaningful. I don't know if we might ever get to a point where it is meaningfully foolproof. And that is a caveat with, right? Humans make errors in war all the time, right? A lot of war is done by 19-year-olds with a few months of training um but we know what that error is we have an understanding both like sort of socially and legally of what that error looks like and what it means when that happens and we have procedures right you can court centuries centuries of experience all across the world of what these 19 year olds will do absolutely and you can court martial a 19 year old it's very hard to court martial an algorithm uh, tell me then about these uh, opposition campaigns against drones, you know, the campaign to ban killer robots on the activist side, things like that. How do you rate the chances of anything happening in policy circles, given that, as we've said, I mean, these drones are now being used effectively in wars, they're being sold and so on. So there's a few tracks. I think it's, um, I think the campaign to stop killer robots has made a remarkable pitch 
for outlining the sort of the parameter of what is what is feared of what of what worst case scenarios look like and what um, what worst case scenarios look like not just to to civilians who stand to be at the uh, on the other end of the barrel uh, from militaries using these things, but also what it looks like to militaries. And I think one of the things that will that's been tricky um, is getting an idea of what autonomy, how autonomy will limit what militaries can do um, and how having a machine that is out of the control of a commander is a real mixed bag. If you're, and it's different to some degree, if what you're doing is you're sending a scout to fly a pattern and then return, that's a bit different than if you're doing it to fly the same thing. And then if it finds a target, it's supposed to blow it up. Um, And it's hard to know. There's, um, but I think it's really important to clarify that having a weapon out of control um, is frightening for a lot of people who even believe in like the purposes of war and the institutions and business and, uh, and profession of war is they don't necessarily want that. But what we're seeing sort of on the edges is a weird place of there's these activist campaigns that say like we need meaningful human control. We need humans to have be in the loop. It needs to be a place where if a weapon is making a decision, it's really a human the weapon could go so far as to yeah. find, target, lock on, and track something to blow up, a vehicle, a person. Um, but it needs to have a human in control or else it stops being a a weapon used by humans. It's sort of a weapon unleashed by humans. Yeah. And I think, I think the activist space has done a remarkable job of clarifying that. There's been debate over whether or not there's, there's, um, there's uh, the Covidia certain conventional weapons has been debating for a long time how they have a working group on autonomous, on lethal autonomous weapon systems. They are trying to figure it out. I think there's um, some meaningful stuff there, but we're, the the sort of pushback is what gets defined as not actually that kind of autonomy. Um, and that's a that's a tricky space because that's where, like there, there's sort of like philosophical questions about, but there's also really practical ones about does a missile count as autonomous if you fire an anti-ship missile at, a battleship, but no one has battleships, but you fire an anti-ship missile and the first ship it's supposed to hit is sunk. So it signals and it it sensors on board, realize that, and it goes to find a second ship in the same flotilla. Is that an autonomous weapon making a decision? Was the decision made when it was launched? It's a hard question fundamentally. And I think it's important that the activist community is out there pushing the, pulling the perspective about this is hard for commanders to control and to use. So you mean that the examples that we've given about a human being at the very end of it, pulling the actual trigger, those examples perhaps aren't as useful when we are thinking about regulating the technology. So I think we have to look at what is being regulated. It's sort of hard to legislate around algorithms. It certainly could be done or to come up with an agreement. There's, And I think what you have to do, sir, if you're looking at how arms control treaties have been successful in the past is they've been there's a there's a few characteristics that really stand out and one of the big ones is it's easier to ban a weapon when the military thinks it's less useful um they don't want to be on either the receiving or the using end of it right that's a big part of what led to the uh bans on chemical weapons right is not just that the weapons are horrific there's there's a War is full of horrific ways to die, but specifically, they're horrific. And then if the wind shifts, suddenly your own forces are in danger. And that's way too unreliable to want to sort of 
planned for. Now, countries did. There's, we obviously have history of victory to it, but countries planned for it a whole lot less um, than they would have without these arms control treaties in place. And I think that's sort of the thing. There's a fear that if both sides have autonomous weapons in a battle, and this is, we could look at this at small scale. We could say like you have a robot that's basically a robot tank with an autonomous gun on it. And there's an, the opposing side has a similar autonomous robot tank. What happens if they start shooting each other first? And then what happens if they start shooting humans first and then target the robots second? Mm. And you get some messy ecosystems. I don't think commanders want to roll into a place where a robot will take that, this, that initiative out of the hands of humans. And I, I hope that there is a space for, for international agreement on this, though. I, um, the negotiations have been going on for a long while. They haven't seemed particularly close to a conclusion. We've talked about areas that, are, frankly, are prone to alarmism and sensationalism. I wanted to end by asking you a bit about the future of warfare, but in a way asking you to do some myth-busting. Like, are there things that people worry about with the future of warfare that you are skeptical about? You're skeptical that they'll come to pass? So, I am, I think, skeptical skeptical of some kinds of fears of autonomy or some sort of forms of autonomy. I think that the idea, so one of the ones that came up, there was this, this, this sort of, this was a sort of activist video called like Slaughterbots, which is about like palm sized drones that could hunt people based on like facial recognition and stuff. Um, and basically that one was clearly a hyperbolic activist statement. I don't think that's a particularly likely outcome of the future. I think th this yeah. one was, was swarms of these autonomous, small autonomous robots, and they go into, I think, a classroom and they sort of target one person. Yeah, yeah, that was sort of the, the thing. And then the idea that you could be targeted specifically in that way. Um, I don't think drones will compete successfully on, on efficiency of sort of um, assassination or, or that versus... Um, several other far lower threshold means to do it. Small arms, I think, aren't going anywhere, and drones that try to compete in that space are really struggling. Uh, but I don't think... What I worry more than autonomy outright is sort of the way that um, autonomy will be used to assist human-guided warfare and um, won't really be checked in that kind of way. If you're narrowing down to what isn't an autonomous weapon to exclude weapons that are actually deployed, then I think it might be impossible to really have any meaningful um, action on that. And what, and if the, so, so we have that human in the loop example, where you have the, the human, the robot is targeting something and the human says, oh, I agree to that target. We're not, one of the real dangers in that is that it's what matters is how the information is presented to the person. Um, with that, it's not that the robot is so much making, there's a danger in the robot making a decision to kill its own, but a kind of underrated danger in all of this and sort of another place to, to focus other attention is if the robot makes an incorrect analysis, but also presents it as a very clean and easy to understand thing for the human to click yes on, then you have human in the loop, but you don't really have a meaningful control if there's all this. Right, and that, that's exactly what happened with the Ahmadi case, that the analysis of what they were looking at was wrong. Yes. Um, and that's an old problem. That's a very old problem. I think really, that's really, I guess, the, the, the myth I would like to bust most is that drones solve problems of intelligence 
in war, drones bring lots of information and introduce new problems as anything that brings new information will. It's a different challenge to think of and work through. Um, and I think it's really important to to think of that, to think that the all the errors humans have had before are going to happen. And now also we will have machine reasoning in the same place. Kelsey Diathodon, thank you for joining us. A pleasure. If you'd like to hear more from Kelsey, you can follow him on Twitter at AthertonKD and sign up for his substack Wars of Future Past at athertonkd.substack.com. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Vaislal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.